You have found the space between art and science. I'm your host, Erica Ruby. Today's episode features artist Sarah Mayojas exploring the artistic potentials of the blockchain, including her own cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Later, UC Parica reviews the recent title, Critical Zones, The Science and Politics of Landing on Earth, edited by Bruno Latour and Peter Weibel. Sarah Mayojas speaks within the context of Laser Boston's event, The Crypto Canvas. This Leonardo Art Science Evening Rendezvous presented by Swiss Next and SciArt Initiative is a virtual adventure exploring the worlds of blockchain and its wide range of possibilities. Over the past few years, public attention has turned to this decentralized technology. But what do cryptocurrencies and art have to do with it? I am Laura Antonietti, and I am the Swiss Next Boston's Art Programming Associate here in our consulate in Boston. Um, and on this event moderating with me will be Julia Bonten from Sired Initiative and Laura Stalder um, from Swiss Next in New York. Uh, Swiss Next Boston is the Swiss Science and Technology Consulate. Uh, we focus on creating networks between Switzerland and the East Coast of the United States as part of a worldwide network. And we create those networks in the areas of research, education, innovation, and the arts. Uh, we support designers, cultural institutions, and art schools in expanding their reach here in North America. We also help them find the right partners and platforms to show their works and show their talent. Laura, please introduce our second speaker. Absolutely, thank you so much. Our next speaker is Sarah Mayohas. So it's my pleasure to introduce you to her. She's a French American artist. Uh, she centers her practice within emerging technologies, working in media from cryptocurrency to augmented reality. Um, she exhibits her work internationally with solo exhibitions in New York City at Red Bull Arts Center and a 303 Gallery. Her work has traveled the institutions, including the Barbican in London, the Jamil Arts Centers in Dubai, the Ming Contemporary Art Museum in Shanghai, and the New Museum here in New York. Um, she's been featured in the New York Times, Time Magazine, Wired, Vice, Art Forum, and The Atlantic. And her film, Cloud of Petals, has been screened at various film festivals, including the Minneapolis Simple International Film Festival, Slamdance, and the Locarno Film Festival in Switzerland. Sarah, the floor is yours. Thank you for being with us today. Hello. Hello, everybody. I'm going to tell you a story, essentially, about an, an art piece that I made a long time ago now. I was still in grad school, and I created a cryptocurrency in 2014, and I called it Bitcoin, and I launched it in February 2015. And these dates are important because, you know, Ethereum launched five months later in July 2015. So this is really crypto antiquity and um, NFTs, you know, just didn't even exist. And I am not the most advanced technologist. So I did this often when I use technology, it's part of a narrative. And so, so I designed Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency backed by my photography at a fixed exchange rate of one Bitcoin to 25 square inches of photographic prints. So as my work changes in value over time, so should the relative value of Bitcoin. And the release of 200 Bitcoins 
was matched with the placement of a corresponding set of prints as per the exchange rate in a safety deposit box at a bank. And so a Bitcoin holder can trade or convert their coins into any of my prints and to put it in more financial terms, this is essentially creating an asset backed security collateralized by my current and future artistic output. And so why would I do this? Because this was um, this was really a conceptual artwork in line with, you know, relational aesthetics, which was something I was interested at the time, turning the artist into a currency. And um, that it also happens to be one of the first examples of tokenizing art on the blockchain, I think just goes to show that generally artists uh, can point towards the future, right? Uh, and that is the, that's the beauty of, you know, artistic experimentation. But at the time, uh, just to give you my rationale, I was just entering the art market. And the truth is that it's incredibly financialized. And what I was seeing is that cultural value and monetary value are in a tight feedback loop for, you know, ever gold is a primary example of that. And that how something exchange is exchange affects how value, you know, is determined. Uh, and this is not the, the rationale behind doing something like this and doing some of the other projects that had to do with financial manipulation later on is essentially taking the logic of a system to the extreme. Uh, and that's a way of making, making it visible. You know, capitalism and money are like these great abstractions that have very real effects. Uh, blockchain too. And so I'm basically pushing something to the extreme, inserting myself into a system and then, you know, making it more visible. So, uh, so I, I did this at the time. I only sold 200 coins, but the idea just like circulated. It was, you know, I was unknown at the time, but suddenly I gave people certificates. Nobody at the time wanted to download a client that I had, you know, developed with a developer. So I had these physical certificates, which is quite quaint of the public key with the private key on the back. This was the Bitcoin wallet. Uh, this was the print that went into the bank. Um, it's and the, this was the first photograph that backed it. And it was the beginning of a series called Speculations. And arguably, speculations have now been the greatest use case of Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, and we'll get back to speculation. But I made these with two-way mirrors. Uh, and that is, you know, my body. And in a sense, I'm, you know, creating space metaphorically. You know, there was a mine that was mining. And this, is, this was the photograph backing it. And the interesting thing about photography is that and this will dovetail, I do want to address this craze in NFT these days, is that photography for a long time has not been valued as richly as painting because it's endlessly reproducible. And so what the market has done is you are allowed to print a photograph and addition it, and then that makes it materially scarce, which goes against its nature essentially. And, um, and, and it's kind of like, you know, how governments, governments printing money, like rendering something more or less materially scarce. And that was how the market ascribed value to photography. But even so, photography has never reached the levels of financial accumulation that you see in paintings, right? In paintings, when you look at an $100 million painting, you're partly looking at an image and you're partly looking at the spectacle of like that much financial accumulation in 
such a small physical piece. And it's worth noting that the financialization of the, of, of the art world was accompanied by the growth in the like logistics and storage, right? Because you both need that unique material for value to accumulate, but then you need to kind of abstract that away for exchange to happen. And so what NFTs now do, right, is that you are really just value now can accumulate in the token completely separately from what the image is. The image now is, you know, the art is as dematerialized as possible. It's practically just an excuse for tokens to become uh, this like speculative vehicle and exchange has been so smooth uh, that, you know, it's like, it just makes sense in how it's designed now um, that, uh, that it would be so speculative. It's interesting because I created Bitcoin at the time to make a commentary on the art world. And since then, um, it's kind of become reality, right? Now, uh, the truth is that these NFTs are very much like Bitcoin. The only difference is that they're not, they're supposedly unique, they're non-fungible, that when an artist mints an edition of 700 of the same image, that image gains currency. And it's also worth noting that the artists that have become most popular engage in what this practice they call every days, posting every day, which is kind of like, you know, I think that's that's like a totally ridiculous thing, but it does mean that um, that the, the work gains a type of, of currency. And um, and so it's now kind of become become reality, you know, for better or for worse. It's kind of amazing. I would love questions because dialogue rather than lecturing is my is my MO. Thank you so much, Sarah. Your wonderful presentation. Very interesting. I'm very sure everyone agrees. So there is right now one question for you. Um, and it is, is Bitcoin still making returns for you? Yeah, this is a very funny question because the fact that it's backed by my photography means that there is essentially a built-in exchange rate in a sense, because I sell my photography for, for dollars in traditional galleries. And so in a sense, Bitcoin has, has increased in value. It's like doubled, right, in the last sort of few years. And at the time it was like somewhat inflated given that you could you know, buy a small piece. Anyways, so it has increased, but I haven't released new ones. And I am like totally on edge about whether I should or not. I'm, I'm like totally on edge about whether I should kind of mint some as NFTs or if that's kind of just cashing in or I have some other ideas um, about playing with like the medium of NFTs and the way, you know, these auctions are like, are these, you know, like performative moments where people are just, uh, you know, bidding each other, uh, you know, bidding up the price, um, you know, people arguably, people is like the Donald Trump of the art world, you know, he's just like, came in, broke all the systems, uh, like he's like watching Fox News and CNN and it's like regurgitating our media landscape back to us. And the buyers of that people like were his previous buyers. And so there's a complete price manipulation in that as well. Um, so I, I'm, I'm like very hesitant about uh, getting back into the fray of it. Um, the question is, what's your view of the future of NFT? Well, first thing we are in like maximum hype, 
you know, this is, there's going to be a crash. There's part of it is because Bitcoin and Ethereum have had such an increase in their price that that has second order effects where anything associated with it also kind of becomes more expensive. Um, so that is, so it's going to crash, but that doesn't mean that NFTs are going to go away. They're going to stay in my opinion. I mean, I have some predictions. I don't think, I, I hope that things can be, that there won't be one company like a Facebook, you know, that becomes a dominant platform where all transactions happen. I do think that there can be kind of niche niches and that's the hope for like web 3.0. Um, and I do think that NFTs like can work with that. I, I think it's very exciting to be honest. Right now it's just for like digital pictures and videos, but it's going to extend to text, to music, and it's gonna allow like a tighter feedback loop between creators and consumers. You know, right now there's no good way to consume these things. Like the fact that this has been like a, almost like a financial innovation in my view means that all of the platforms are just focused on trading and buying and selling. But eventually there's going to be, you know, fun ways that people will just scrape, you know, the Ethereum blockchain for all of the NFTs and create like a searchable web of things over time. You could go from collection to collection, like things, things will emerge um, that I think will be more geared towards, towards consumption and towards non like crypto kind of users. Right now, the audience is very much crypto people. Um, and I do hope that it can expand. I am wondering, like, how are your thoughts on the alignment of the actual analog art market and the NFT art market? Or like major like differences, like where do they meet or where, where do they essentially drift? Yeah. Um, so, you know, Christie's did a people sale. Christie's was like the marketing machine here. Like it was kind of a, you know, putting the two worlds together and creating a lot of buzz. Um, there's, there's disalignment in the fact that these are completely different audiences. The people buying traditional art and the people buying NFTs are completely different. Is that going to change? Are they going to get closer together? Like maybe, definitely the traditional art market is going to cater to these um, consumers because they are spending meaningful, meaningful amounts of money. And the art world generally has had, even just in the last year, had had like they've had to kind of move more online. So it's, I think it's, they're going to get closer. Right now they're worlds apart, but I do think that they, they will get closer. So the next question that I'm having here is, Uh, will NFT really change the art infrastructure if we have the pow uh, powerful players like Christie investing into NFT infrastructures? I mean, I, yeah, kind of like the some, you know, the question before Christie's is is good marketing, and they're just trying to get into the, you know, get into the business. Um, I think Christie's is somewhat irrelevant to whether NFTs, you know, take off or not. They're just trying to get a slice for themselves. Um, I, I do think that it will, it will have some changes, mostly in, um, you know, digital artists. It's not that their work didn't have value before. 
it's that their work now can become a tool for speculation, just like, you know, 20th century modern art paintings can be a tool for speculation. That, that's the difference. It's a financial innovation. Um, and, and in a sense, it will draw a lot more attention, you know, more people might make more digital artworks now because they hope, you know, that they can be remunerated for it. I do think it's positive. Yeah. So the next question is, um, how are you feeling about resource use and crypto change using POW? What is a reasonable carbon footprint for art? So first of all, there's been like a lot of talk that Ethereum, which is what most NFTs are on, will change to pr from proof of work to proof of stake, which has like big implications for the amount, the, for the carbon footprint. I am like not sure how far away this is, when this is gonna happen. They've been talking about it for a while. It's unclear. So that's one thing. I don't, you know, I've thought about this a while. I for a while I have not released any NFTs partly at like for my own kind of guilt of like, do I wanna use this much carbon to put up an image? So I haven't stepped into it yet. But um, but I I don't think that we should like stop the development of this because we don't have like the most efficient system yet. And we do have so much work on like creating, you know, on renewable energy anyways to, to, to do like, this is like such a tiny sliver. It almost feels, and, and, you know, so many other things have carbon footprints that we just can't measure as well. So it does feel like a little bit of like self-flagellation to be like, no, like we're not, we're going to stop this. No, it's going to happen. People are going to do it. We just need to learn how to do it in a better way and also have a lot more renewable energy available. So um, that's kind of my, my hot take. Uh, more a practical question um, for all the future NFT artists out there, is there any special courses that an artist can get online to become able to make NFTs? And what platform is the best for usual artists, uh, visual artists? So there are a few, I think that if you just Google like how to make an NFT, there are definitely primers available. There are a few platforms that some of which you've probably heard of. There's um, Nifty Gateway, there's Super Rare, there's OpenSea, um, there's Foundation, and they kind of all have a little bit of a different vibe. You know, OpenSea is kind of like the eBay of NFTs, um, and Foundation is much more curated. So Nifty Gateway is like kind of like where Grimes, you know, does a drop. Uh, so they just have a different vibe and more will pop up, I'm sure. So just whatever you make, try to see, you know, look around. I don't, I'm, you know, have fun. <laughs> I mean, it, I know it is very hard at the moment to get into some of them. Um, well, obviously Nifty Gateway um, is like for already like very high and artists who are already known. And I know of my own experience from artists, a uh, friend of mine, it's hard to get into super rare. So um yeah, well, the easiest one is open on OpenSea. You can create your own profile and put your things up. The, the question is like getting your stuff seen, right? You need, to, you need to sort of build your own audience in a way, like instead of having thousands of people like Nifty Gateway gets thousands of people to bid on drops. But um, 
they're yeah, also open sea is less than a second. So that makes the purchase very hard. Yeah, yeah. But OpenSea is open, you know, you can list on OpenSea. Anybody can. So thank you. Sarah Mayohas enlists the natural world as references, network as medium, and the specular as a mode of contemplation. By merging traditional mythologies and cliched objects of beauty with contemporary digital mediums, Mayohas enacts a visual language for the systems, algorithms, and technologies that influence our daily lives. You can find more information about Sarah Mayohas, Leonardo Laser Talks, and Swissnext Boston in the episode notes at leonardo.info podcast. For more on this topic, keep an eye out for the August 2021 issue of Leonardo Journal for the article Crypto Art, a Decentralized View by Massimo Francesche et al. In this article, the authors propose a collection of viewpoints on crypto art from different actors of the system, artists, collectors, galleries, art historians, and data scientists. An early version of the article is available now at the MIT Press website. You'll find a link in the episode notes for this podcast. For Leonardo Reviews, here is Yussi Parika. Critical Zones, The Science and Politics of Landing on Earth, edited by Bruno Latour and Peter Weibel. Critical Zones, The Science and Politics of Landing on Earth is the edited volume emerging from the ZKM exhibition of almost the same name, Critical Zones, Observatories for Earth Politics. While the book is edited by Latour and Weibel, the curatorial team of the exhibition included also Martin Guinard and Petina Korinzenberg with Jessica Menger. The exhibition, even if hit by the COVID-19 pandemic and thus mostly shown online, gathered a lot of attention in its own right as it featured several exciting projects on mediations of nature, entanglements of technosphere and the biosphere, and different aesthetic responses to the Anthropocene. The whole project and the book and the exhibition carries with it a strong commitment to the belief that art-science collaborations can act as techniques of complexification. Critical Zones announces that we need, I quote, new earthy politics, thus echoing Latour's past years of work. In this case, earthbound becomes specified, however, through the critical zone that itself emerges outside this art curatorial Latour complex of thinking, quote, the invention of a few scientists, mostly from the earth sciences and geochemistry, as a way to bring different disciplines together in order to refresh the study of the thin skin of the living earth, end of quote. Gaia is never far away in this discourse, but the most interesting part is not the terminology, but the focus on particular thickness or thinness of a surface of the earth as a dynamic zone and its different manifestations from research on expeditions such as Humboldt to theorization of the biosphere, such as Vladimir Fernatsky. The collection argues that the critical zone is a perspectival space, even a material texture that is epistemologically significant. It is pitched as a way to break down 
quote, a cartographical view of the planet Earth, end of quote, while it also meant to interrupt, quote, the legal and political unity of any global view, end of quote. In an apt formulation that captures the link between material formations of so-called nature and technological infrastructures, quote, the figure of a globe doesn't unify what it registers, it simply points at some dataset, end of quote. In this description of worlds of environmental data and environment as data, the book's several approaches are hard to summarize in one go. The range of works and texts is overwhelmingly large, which leads in also into the usual point about edited collections. They can be somewhat uneven. Here, though, the different um, length texts are probably meant as snippets of work in progress as well, as catalyzers of particular ideas that can be followed up uh, by the reader, for instance, outside the book proper. The eight sections of the book, Disorientation, Disconnected, Critical Zones, Gaia, Terrestrial, Divided, Depiction, Suspended, they are all rich entities. But with the book close to being 500 pages and designed as massively heavy, large, coffee table type of an entity, at least I was left wondering if other formats, for instance, three or four shorter books, could have been an alternative option. The book is useful as a repository of texts, ideas, interventions, some more useful than others, some more to the point than others. The interview with Dibesh Chakrapati is very good in many of its themes and the ability to capture aspects of the historical production of planetary and the Earth. Indeed, to quote, the planetary is what the Earth comes from. The global comes from a historical process that includes European expansion and the development of the technology that can connect the sphere we live on into a globe for us. End of quote. For Latour and Chakrabarti, this leads into a recursive definition of the global and the planetary, the one discovering the other in an operative chain of techniques. Billions of years of planetary times are included in the negotiation of what counts as historical. It also triggers questions of politics and how to model a subject where the stakes are in dealing with or getting rid of their Lockean legacy. So if not the white European property-owning subject of the male, what then is the agent of history? Although in this bit of the conversation, when Latour responds that, I quote, political thought has not tried to build any links between humans and these larger complexes of which humans are also part of, end of quote, one has to ask, really? In other words, decades of new materialism, feminist um, science and technology studies, and science fiction, critical post-humanities, these have been among the voices, among others, that have offered much input to also political thought. But this slight hiccup is balanced with the chapters in the book that in more detailed ways show some of the historical aspects of these questions. A short text by Donna Haraway ends the collection, written also as a letter 
to Latour and also in honor of Ursula Le Guin's Always Coming Home. To quote, also, we live in times of extraordinary Afrofuturist and indigenous futurist fiction that is changing the shape of SF for everybody. My puzzlement is why you have not turned to science fiction early and often. End of quote. The spatial concepts, metaphorics, but also concrete design, epistemic, architectural models underpinning the book are especially interesting. This includes um, Jan, Jan Salazivitz focusing on the Anthropocene square meter, a sort of a thought object formulated as a terrarium that shows the continuum across natural and artificial, from soil and mud to building concrete and plastics. Bubble structures, bubble structures such as Biosphere 2, are part of the architecture of the zones as well. And the critical zone itself is a term that specifies materiality into, I quote, a composite heterogeneous environment of soil, gas, water, cells, genes, all connected, end of quote. But also which triggers the design question, how do we model it and renew the maps, so to speak. This is why some of the interventions concerning art and data visualization hold an important part in the book including, for example, Alexandra Arenes, Arenes's chapter and visualizations. And besides critical zone, of course, another key example is the site of observatory, as it recurs in curatorial practices and metaphors of knowledge concerning the Anthropocene. It is a particular architectural site, or more like perspectival knowledge that is aesthetic and epistemic. It comes as images and as data. The awareness of this spatial metaphor and concrete exhibition architecture is articulated in the chapter by Guinard and Korintenberg. The statistical awareness of global abstractions and their materiality are tightly entangled. Or to quote Pierre Jabonnier, quote, there are territories that can be drawn on the basis of economic and ecological data, end of quote leading into the current dilemma of two territories that define the current problem. Another quote, the legal and political territory of the nation-state and the ecological and economic territory defined by the space required to mobilize the goods we consume. End of quote. This indeed is then the long-term perspective of colonial and imperial ties that define the logistical underpin underpinning of the earthly and its unevenly distributed resources. One can then also read this into the current and emerging forms of ethno-nationalism that will be building their border policies based on the design of the territory outside from where resources can be extracted and the territory inside where a tightly filtered population enjoys legal and other privileges. Many inspiring chapters could be mentioned. Anurad Hamathur and Dilip Dakunha on water and wetness is excellent. Simon Schaeffer's perspectives through the history of science are always articulated with flair. Jonathan Gray's take on datafication of forests is a useful, it's a useful overview. Alongside, for example, Jennifer Gapris's text on sensors and sensing 
helps to understand earlier mentioned themes about environmental data. Joseph Leo Corner's Nature Painting is another text where historicity of representations of nature is brought back to questions of Humboldt's expeditions. John Tresh on cos Cosmograms is always enjoyable to read. These are a couple of examples of the many interesting contributions. To return to the curatorial context, the ZKM and the Latour Viable Partnership has a long tradition in these large art science exhibitions. One could say that they were never meant as single exhibitions, but aim to, they were aiming to create territories of discussions. Remember, for example, Iconoclash and Making Things Public, Atmospheres of Democracy, both from early part of 2000s, as examples of similar methods that have been carried forward to also critical zones. At least two kinds of questions are triggered by these kinds of shows. How they have shown ways of incorporating interdisciplinary humanities research in art exhibitions, and how the art exhibition has become one major way for scholarly work to reach the broader public. And even more so, how can the exhibition act as more than just this dissemination, where the artistic work can be exhibited in terms of demonstrating method and process? I'm also in this context thinking about Lia Carreras ongoing uh, PhD research project on the question of curatorial shift toward emphasis on labs. So the perennial question that follows is how these buzzing ideas exhibited in space are continued and supported outside the exhibition space as an event so that the art, science and ecology trio does not merely become integrated into the spectacle of contemporary curating. One of the main issues is then to avoid the air of solutionism of art and science and to emphasize that these shows and the books that come out from them are creating interesting problems without, however, also fetishizing the idea of a problem in ways that becomes a continuous self-referential me meditation either. In other words, how to build from such interdisciplinary curatorial setups more than a reflection of topics, but also reflection and changing modes of curating, for example, in terms of questions of sustainability of the institutional context itself. This concerns energy, travel, logistics and more. Yusi Paraka is a writer, media theorist, and professor in technological culture and aesthetics at Winchester School of Art at the University of Southampton. He is also a visiting professor at the Academy of the Performing Arts in Prague. Leonardo Reviews has provided scholarly reviews of books, exhibitions, videos, websites, and conferences since 1968. Reviews are published monthly at leonardo.info reviews.
Between Art and Science is a production of Leonardo, the International Society for the Arts, Sciences and Technology. Our editorial director is Erica Ruby. This episode's featured discussion is a production of Laser Boston, the Leonardo Art Science Evening Rendezvous, presented by Swissnext and ArtSci Initiative. Leonardo Review's editor-in-chief is Michael Punt, podcast production by Tina Suemaka. Our theme music was composed by Wyatt Koish. Visit leonardo.info slash podcast for extended episode notes with more information about our contributors, a list of full available episodes, and links to streaming services where we can be found. Find out more about Leonardo, our publications, and our programs at www.leonardo.info.